Hello and welcome to the Memory Caps Podcast. This is just a quick PSA before our episode starts. Um, there were two interviews I did before NAIC this year uh, with Stefan Erickson and with Mike Fouché. Unfortunately, because of NAIC being such a long weekend and then me immediately going on a three-week trip to Europe right afterwards, I was not able to get the editing done for these episodes in time. I am now back from Europe, finishing them up. So if anything is mentioned in these episodes talking about the upcoming meta for NAIC, I apologize. It might not be very relevant anymore, but the vast majority of these episodes is just great conversations with great players about their histories and how much they love the game. So I hope you enjoy, and moving forward, expect some uh, great interviews um, going into this next season. Have a good one. Hello and welcome to the Memory Caps podcast, where we interview members of the Pokemon trading card game community. My name is Rafal Gladys. Each week we'll be speaking with our guests about their background with the Pokemon TCG, how they got involved with the game, and give them, a, give them an opportunity to share their love of the game. Today's guest is Stefan Eriksson. Stefan is a player from Denmark with almost two decades of Pokemon TCG experiences. He has multiple regionals top finishes and has 11 worlds invites. He's also the host of the YouTube channel Stefan's Classroom, where he makes informative videos diving into the statistics and math behind the Pokemon TCG. Outside of Pokemon, Stefan is a professor of finance at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. This is actually part two of our interview with Stefan. Last week, we spoke to him about his background with the game, how he got involved with the game, and some of his insights about attending tournaments and the last 20 years of uh, Pokemon TCG history. Today's episode will be more of a focus on his Pokemath and Stefan's Classroom YouTube series, where he dives into the math behind the Pokemon TCG. So if any of you are math nerds, you can get your notebooks, uh, and uh, pal pads ready to take <laughs> to take some uh, to take some writing down. Um, we will be referencing some of his uh, videos that were on YouTube. I will make sure all of them are in the show notes. So if anyone gets lost along the way, you are welcome to check the show notes of the episode and um, follow along with any of our conversations. How are you doing, Stefan? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, again, and, <laughs> of course. Uh, lo love your palpat introduction. That one was nice. nice. Yes, I wanted to <laughs> slip in a, a, as much of a reference as I could. <laughs> and, um, and just for the viewers out there, it's associate professor. I, I'm not allowed to, uh, or I don't want to go by professor yet because I haven't reached that level just yet. I hope. I hope one day in the future I'll reach it, but associate professor for now. I see. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> No worries. Um, yes. I just uh, I don't want to be mistaken for an actual full professor in finance yet. I see. I see. Well, I wish you the best of luck in uh, your future your future career. Um, Thank you. Of course. So, for anyone who uh, might be listening to this and is wondering, you know, why do I care about statistics in Pokemon? I just add up the big numbers on my card. Um, could you tell us a little bit about just why you believe that math and statistics is so important? Uh, to understand if you want to succeed in the Pokemon TCG. Yeah, how do I start? So I think it's a very good idea to mention back what we talked about last time a little bit because I did touch upon it. And I also spoke about how that over time you develop this intuition for the game, whether you actually dive into the math or not, that you develop with practice this understanding. And uh, now we're going to talk about the other side saying that, okay, um, you really want to learn the math for actually, I believe a multiple number of reasons. Also because I just, first of all, just find it interesting, 
But what I think it really helps you with is get you a better understanding whether, for instance, when you're deck building, how much it actually matters to add an additional certain card and why some things succeed more than others in terms of, say, consistency. You hear it all over the place again, consistency is key or consistency is king or whatever we want to call it. But it all comes back to the same. That's just based on statistics. We can also talk about shuffling, how that actually works. We can talk about one thing I want to bring up today with mulligans, for instance. Like you sit in the event and sometimes you have all, if you played for a bit, you've been saved by one of your opponent's mulligan. Or you feel like, oh, I'm mulliganing a lot with this here. Why do I give away so many free cards to my opponent? And what are the probabilities of actually doing this? And how does it actually matter that you change the number of cards in your deck? Number of basics in this case. There's so many small things you can do in order to simply improve your own situation and also to promote just a better understanding for the game. And I hope if you're listening to this, it's because you like the game of Pokemon. That's at least a fair assumption, I think. And I hope that uh, also getting some understanding of math behind it would only make you like the game even more. But uh, let's see how we get along today. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And I, I do know that you have um, actually used some concepts within the Pokemon TCG as assignments for your students. So you don't even have to like the Pokemon. You might just like the all the numbers behind it. Of course, like I think so I, I I gave, you know, just for an assignment case or actually for their final exam. I had master students last year. It was their final exam before they actually obtained their degree. And uh, I conveniently had this nice statistics course running and some of them, they were their last exam. For most of them, it's just an exam at the beginning, but some miss it. And I gave them a, a literal, I wrote up a Pokemon adventure for them for their last question, where they had to uh, search far and wide for each currency to understand the exchange rate that's inside. Really, I wrote it up like really cheesy, <laughs> really, really. But it was uh, really fun to also just use some of these numbers. And I, uh, I also just use a lot of example in my everyday teaching when it comes to, say, pricing of assets. Even when we talk about bubble detection, we talk about... Uh, just statistical concepts uh, also in my honors college course. So I, I actually use in a lot of components in my own teaching, uh, which I find is incredibly interesting because there's so many things to this game aside from just, you know, it's fun to play. In that case, uh, let's just dive right in. Um, what is the first <laughs> topic you would like us to cover? You were mentioning mulligans a little bit. Yeah, I really want to talk mulligans because uh, I could just go on a lot or a lot of complicated math or what could be more complicated. But truth is, a lot of players out there don't don't they never look into the math because, well, math is scary or math is evil or I don't like math and I don't understand it. So what I will try to do here is just to try to get some kind of uh, intuitive understanding of, say, mulligans. I think that's a really good way of... Uh, starting because it comes back in a lot of calculations and so i think the example i want to use today is just that we have a nice uh, deck of cards we have a certain number of basics and i'm going to sit here and type some numbers you're going to hear me do it live on the go and simply just calculate a few numbers here and see you know where we get with it and see how much it changes and explain to everybody what the thought process is uh, because yes there's wonderful tools out there that can actually calculate this for you very quickly but what I really like to do is go this one step deeper and really understand what are the components of these things. Uh, and that's what I hope we can achieve here uh, in just a, just a little while. Let's say it like that. Mm -hmm. I, hope that's a, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> well, I, I think that definitely does make sense. Um, so um, is there a 
and I can I can edit these parts out. But ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. A... We can. Uh, so we we start just from episode one. That's always the gotcha. best place to go. Uh, so I made the series already quite some years ago. I just realized time actually flies, and you know because the pandemic years never happened, right? It just uh, time flew by, and uh, in one blink we're sitting in mid twenty twenty three now. And uh, I made this first video all the way back in was it twenty twenty? I don't even remember, but a long time ago. But many of the concepts there are still very relevant, and that's also where you will find some of the Mulligan pieces back if you want to go check it out. And I also come back to it often because when you want to calculate other things. You would have to sometimes or very often factor in mulligans and that's why i want to do mulligans so i think the best place to start with this is well let's just recap what uh what is a mulligan um in a, in our game here it's basically the concept of if you don't open with a basic pokemon so you shuffle up your deck properly of course then you draw your opening seven hands we check for a basic pokemon if there's no basic pokemon there we reveal our hand to our opponents and we have a mulligan that's that's at least how i learned it many years ago and i assume it's still the same today and then uh, we will keep going with this process until you have a basic, at least one basic. You can, of course, open with more, which is perfectly fine. And then the question comes, what's the probability of actually hitting a mulligan? And you can easily extend to, say, two mulligans in a row, uh, three mulligans. And it become, it's actually really easy once you got the first one. So um, I think that's a really good place to start. And, of course, uh, <laughs> you as the interviewer, if there's any clarification notes you need just just stop me because i tend to ramble a lot of course no <laughs> i i think you explain all quite well and one thing that i think some listeners might not know is that if they especially if they've only played the pokemon card game that other card games have pretty different rules regarding mulligans like if you've ever played yeah. Yu-Gi-Oh or magic like you don't need like a monster down to start your game no. unlike pokemon so they yeah. have what they would call a mulligan, but it's much different than ours. It basically, if you have your opening hand and you don't like it, you can shuffle it in and draw another hand with one less card. So you can just say like, "Yeah, hey, this hand isn't good. Let me let me get it, try to get another one." Yeah, I, f I find I find it super cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a it's a bit of a different process because in those games you don't need to. Um, there's nothing you need to find in order to start the game. You just have to be happy with your hand. In Pokemon, you need to find that one basic. So um, then it really starts to matter of what are you playing in your deck? How many starters are you happy with starting? Are you playing a deck like Stonejourner VMAX where you have only four starters? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I love your examples here. And it's not as if in Pokemon, if there's no Pokemon play, we attack the trainer directly or something like that. That's yeah. not how this works. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if your Pokemon doesn't start anything, you can just attack your opponent. Uh. Exactly, exactly. You know, no, no. But um, I think it's so cool with Mulligans because I didn't know many. I just knew the Mulligan system was different than other games. And I learned recently in Magic that they actually shifted their Mulligan way here not too long ago. And then they had names for it. It was a Vancouver Mulligan style and there was a London Mulligan Oh and really? They differed. Yeah, yeah, they differed a little bit. They actually changed their mulligan ruling. I don't even somebody who knows more about matching can probably fill us in exactly when this happened. But I just knew it changed from one to the other, and it actually impacted the game quite a lot. So um, it's super interesting. But as far as I know, Pokemon never changed this. I think mulligan was always just this. I believe. 
Yes, uh, I mean, as far as I've played, that's essentially yeah. my my knowledge of it. You have always needed a starting Pokemon. So, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and the the um, second episode you ever did of Pokemath was specifically in reference to a card called Dedenne GX, which many people uh, uh, uh. did not like starting. Um, for anyone who just is starting to play, who is familiar with the new Squawkabilly card that came out, Imagine Squawkabilly, except you don't want to start it. Uh, you can only play it from your hand to discard your hand and draw six. I think uh, I, th I think the best I think the best uh, I think the best uh, com comparison today is uh, starting Luminion, right? That, yes, that's bad. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's it's essentially useless. There are obviously niche cases. You could some always sometimes use Dedenne's uh, GX attack to get a turn of paralysis <laughs> off. I've done that before, but you typically are very very frustrated. You've seen many opponents that they just go ugh dang it, um, because they've started their one Luminion. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about ca calculating that probability and building your deck to maybe minimize that possibility? I could do that. I think that's a really good one. But that one must realize it's already quite intricate. There are some steps, and I really lined up an episode because we got like step-by-step -step approach. Um, but again, like I, I think I also said in the opening, it brings us back to Mulligans once more, actually. So uh, I think we can go do that. I think it's just better we start with the mulligans because we're going to use that later. Oh, anyway, of course, yeah, need, yeah, yeah. Let's because you need, with... you need you need to you need to factor in the mulligans uh, regardless. I see. Because I see. and then you can actually extend it. So imagine that uh, you have a deck of cards and you want to figure out what's the chance I actually mulligan here. Let's just say you want to you know check that out. That that could be a thing. And uh, what you have to think about here, you're actually looking for the probability of opening with zero Pokemon in your hand, zero basic Pokemon. And that, that's essentially what you have to do, right? And the way I like to do it is I use this distribution known as the hypergeometric distribution. It has a super, uh, super catchy name, I know it, I know it. But it, what it essentially it does and the way I want people to think about it, you segment your deck uh, either in your head or you write it on a piece of paper or you do it like in Excel. I'm doing it right now. I'm gonna, you're going to hear me clicking in the back because I'm just going to do it as we go along. And imagine you segment your deck into two pieces here, the basics and the rest. So in other, way, in other words, the thing you're interested in hitting or not hitting, say, and then the remainder. That's essentially what we're thinking about here. So if I want to ask you, like, uh, suppose we have... 10 basics in our deck, right? That seems, or should we go higher? What is a common number of basics um, nowadays? I think 10. I think, I'm thinking if like a Gardevoir deck plays about 10. I think that seems about yeah, right. Seems, uh, we can always adjust it. So let's let's think about 10. So I'm going to write up here, we have for basics, basics, we have 10. I have that here on my note sheet, but everybody can follow along at home. And just imagine you write down, you have 10 yeah. basics. Okay. Then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference to all the things in Excel, but you can also do in Google Sheets or whatnot. It's just to really get an idea for how this works. So we're interested in hitting no basics, or not per se interested, but that's what we want to calculate, right? And the way you do this is by using some combination formula. It's called Combin in Excel, so it calculates combination of cards. And you essentially want to look at this. You have 10 possible basics, and you want to know in how many combinations do there exist where you have none? That means that you would write combin 10, 0 in this case, because it's a choose function. So that means you have a set of 10, and you're choosing 0. And when you think about that in your head, but wait, 
that will just give one. There's only one possibility of doing this. And that's true. So that's just one component of the formula because the formula actually consists of three components. The two things I explained, that is the part that you really want to hit, the part you don't want to hit, and then we have to divide it with, say, the whole thing. Explain a moment what I mean by that. Does that make sense to you? What I'm trying to achieve here with the segmentation of different things? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that makes sense. You know, uh, just kind of understanding that, uh, you know, kind of taking out all of like the, the Pokemon terminology exactly. out of your deck and just understanding it as these are the cards that I want to see. These are the cards that I do not want to see. What is the chance? Exactly. So think about it. You have first these 10 that you, in this case, let's say you, you want to have a mulligan, so you don't want to see a basic. That's what we're trying to say here, right? Mm -hmm. So you have 10 basics. You want to see none of them, okay? Then you have the other part of the deck. Then I can ask you, if I have 10 basics in my deck, how many other cards do I have left? I have, well, 50 cards left, right? So there's 50 other cards. And when we draw our um, starting hand, we want to hit all our seven cards from that, that segment of the deck, right? So when we want to hit a mulligan, you want to draw seven cards from the pool of 50 cards that are not basic. Make sense? Mm -hmm. That's essentially the way we want to do it. So you do, again, the combination formula, but this time 50, and you choose seven from there. There's a number of combinations from that. And then all you actually have to do is multiply this with the thing we did before. That means you suddenly end up with two things. You end up with a combination of, uh, in this case, 10 over 0, multiplied by a combination of 50 over 7, or 50 choose 7. And then the only thing you actually have to do here, you're thinking about, you have these combinations out of how many possible combinations of cards can I draw from my deck? And that may sound like a very complicated thing for most, but essentially what you're saying is, if you start your game and you have 60 cards in your deck, I'm assuming everybody has a legal standard 60 card deck, by the way, seems fair. And how many possible ways can you draw seven cards from there? So you take the thing we did before, you write Compen, and then you have 60 comma seven this time, and you divide that with the number you had before. And if you do that in Excel, you achieve a number that says 0 0.25863. And what does that mean? Well, you multiply that with 100 and you get the percentage value. So you multiply this with 100, and it tells you it's 25.86%. And that's it. It's 25.86 chance of hitting a mulligan. So roughly a quarter, one in four, roughly. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's actually it. It's actually, that is all that's to it, uh, to calculate a mulligan. I think that was uh, that was the shortest way I could do it, at least. <laughs> I think I think that makes a lot of sense, and I I think what does help is treating your de your deck more like just like kind of raw numbers and like blank cards yeah. that are just either the card you want or the card you don't want, because then because you know when when you're asking the question of well what are all the different possibilities of hands you can get well. That can get a little overwhelming. It's like, well, one can't, one hand yeah. can have research, boss, uh, a basic, oh, evolution. Yeah. But if you're thinking it more of, well, this hand could have a basic and six non-basics. This hand could have seven basics. This hand could have seven non-basics. Like I think that um, thinking of your deck that way 
um, as the cards you want versus the cards you don't allows it to be a little more easy to process um, some of that some of that math. You're absolutely right. It's all about generalizing and all about making like simple notation. And our notation becomes very simple. You either have a basic or you don't. Mm -hmm. the, it, the deck becomes binary in that sense. So every time you want to calculate anything that you want to hit a specific item of, you could think about as the deck has two components, the things you want to hit and the things you don't want to hit. That, that's essentially it. And in the particular case of mulligans, you should think about that we have 10 basics from which you don't want to hit anything, and you got 50 remaining cards from which you want to hit all seven. That's, uh, that's actually it. And, and what, what a follow-up question I often get is, so what does it matter that I add one basic to my deck? Does it really matter a lot? Well, all you have to do is you do exactly the same approach. You just have to change instead of 10 over zero, it's now 11 basics over zero. And you drop the 50 to 49, because now when you have one more basic, you have one less of other cards. Otherwise, the, the, the thing stays the same. And then you drop already from 25 something all the way down to 22.24%. You make a more, of a more than a three percentage point drop just by adding one basic. Mm -hmm. It may not seem like a lot and isolated in one game. It doesn't feel like a lot. But if you go in and you play nine rounds, right, in an event, and uh, you at least play two games, then it's 18 games. Then these 3%, they really start mattering a lot. Yes. And remember, any additional basic you add, that, assuming that it's a decent basic, is, um, well, one basic more than that Luminion you don't want to start. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I think that this really matters a lot. Um, I mentioned a little bit at the beginning for for decks that play just like one type of card, you know, like the Stonejourner deck we had last format, like um, a few years exactly. back, Guard of War Sylveon, where you'd play four Guard of War Sylveon and maybe like one other thing. Um, you know, I had a friend who mulliganed, I think, seven or eight times once with Guard of War Sylveon. So if you're playing a deck like that, you need to feel confident that you will very likely mulligan multiple times what is your game plan now that your opponent's starting with a 10 card hand that is actually a very good point because often i can actually at this point not recall anybody who actually took this into consideration when they chose a deck like at least they haven't told me and it's something when you think about like say god of or sylvian you you just think about what the matchups are and whatnot but in this particular case i don't think you would think about that you actually, on average, make your opponent's starting hand better in, against any deck, right? And what do I mean by that? Well, we assume that uh, the more cards they have in their starting hand, the better the hand is. Or at least the higher probability that they have what they need in order for a decent turn one, say. So it's a really interesting consideration that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about. Hmm. So it's very, very interesting. I think at least. Yeah, I think so as well. <laughs> so I think at this point, like uh, if you want to talk Luminion, we can talk Luminion, but uh, fair warning to everybody out there that that, that becomes a little more, uh, say, tricky. <laughs> hmm. I see. Yeah, I, I, I do keep kind of thinking back to that idea of then, you know, now that you've decided that maybe you have like your 10 basics versus your 50 non-basics, well, then you have to yeah. start dividing those basics into basics you want versus basics you don't want 
Um, exactly. So, so we much more complicated we just, now. We could just go for that, but we could just go for that. So imagine we, we go for those 10 basics, right? And then the first thing we have to think about, let's say one of those basics is Luminion. I think that's a really good example these days because I cannot imagine a situation where you think Luminion that is perfectly fine to start with. It will be one strange deck for sure. Although the attack is decent, it shuffles itself away into the deck, so you could reuse the ability, right? Mm -hmm. But in general, I wouldn't consider it a good starting Pokemon. So let's go from that assumption. Then using exactly the same framework here, we can do this in a number of actually steps. And the Mulligan step, we actually done already. So that's one of the steps for later we already completed. So that's why we're just going to assume there's still 10 basics in the deck, right? Now, think about it the following way. First, we have to figure out what's the chance that our Luminion is even among our first seven cards. That's the first thing we need to consider. And why is that so important? Well, yes, you need it in your seven cards, otherwise you can't start it. But I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, yeah, yeah, but wait, wait, wait. If we start another basic next to Luminion, we're fine. And that's true. But first, we need to know what's the chance it's even among the first seven cards. Does that make sense? Yes, so not just uh, getting one of those 10 basics, it's getting specifically one of one of those 10 basics. Exactly. So if we go for, I'm going to write here, step one, uh, get Luminion, or, you know, have Luminion in hand. Have uh, fish in hand, that's what I'm going to spell, because my, my other way of saying that I can't spell to Luminion. Right. Luminion, okay, I probably can, but <laughs> let's not uh, try that. So if I go for the same idea... We have one Luminion deck. That means that there's, well, one card in there. And we want to, for this particular calculation, we want to hit it. So that becomes a combination of one of one, essentially. So in terms of writing it up in an Excel uh, way or combination way, you're having a one choose one formula. Combine one, comma one. And uh, that doesn't need a lot of calculations. No, there's only one option here. If you do this one, it's going to give you the value of one. Because there's only one possible way you can get draw one card from a deck of one card. There only exists one way, for as far as I know. So the first part of the formula becomes Compen 1-1. One, one. Because you have one Luminion, you want to hit the Luminion. Okay. Now, what about the rest? Well, we have six other cards in our starting hand we're drawing. And they've been drawn from the remainder of the 59 cards. So you get Compen 59 over 6 because we're drawing the six remaining cards. And then we're back at exactly the same as before. You have to divide everything here with all possible combination of drawing from your deck, which means divide by combine 60 over 7. And that gives you a probability of 11.67% of opening with Luminion in your hand. We're not there yet, but this is just a, the probability of that that one Dominion is among your seven cards. You follow? Yes, 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 yes. But I, feel free no... always to feel free to always just barge in. It's no, all, no, uh, I, I, I get it. Uh, but obviously, there is now one more big step to to get. Yeah, through, we got, right. We get. We have one other thing because remember now, we have one thing here. What about no other basics in there? We need to actually calculate the probability now of hitting no other basics next to this little Luminion. Does that make sense also? Yes. 
So that will be step two. I'm going to write up here step two. No other basics. That means that uh, essentially it means that in the six other cards, there should be no basics. And what does that actually mean yet again? Well, you can think of, we can do this in two ways. We can either make uh, the calculation for what's the probability of having exactly one basic in the other six cards, exactly two basics, exactly three, four, five, and six, and add all these probabilities up together. That's one way of doing it. It's a little tedious, but it will certainly work. Or we can just say, what's the probability of essentially having zero basics in the last pile here? So I'm, uh, I did not try that version before because when I did this video back in the day, I did the really step-by-step -step long route. But uh, for convenience, I'm going to try the short one. So we have, uh, say, we have nine other basics in the deck, right? Yes, we do. Uh, because we had nine bases, ten bases in our deck, so there's nine other bases in our deck. We want to hit none of those. Okay. We have... Aside from the nine other cards in the deck, we have how many other than left? Let's think about that for a second. We have a deck of 59 cards now because one is Luminia that's already sitting in our hand. And we have nine basics there. That means there's, there's well, 50 other cards. Okay. And we want to hit um, all our cards from there. And then again, we have to divide this now with... We don't have a 60 card deck anymore. We have a 59 card deck. So 59, and then we draw six from that pile. I hopefully, I hope this will be correct. Otherwise I have to do some recalculation and recalibration <laughs> and stuff on the run. But I think, um, I think this will make sense. Let's, uh, let's try this out more. Yeah, I'm just gonna go for it. If this doesn't work, we can always re revisit this later. Of course. I'm doing a little bit on the whim here, but uh, I think that the logic of it makes sense. So, just to bring everybody up to speed, one of our cards in our hand is Luminion. We need to know what the probability of any of the other six cards in our hand is not a basic. That that's the goal, right? Mm -hmm. Which means we are drawing six cards from uh, from our stack, remain extra, and then we have to calculate what's the probability of none of those are basics. So that means translate into the whole formula business. We first have nine basics left from which we want to hit none. And then we have 50 other cards left from which we want to hit all six. And then divide by all possible combination of those six cards from a 59 card deck. Yeah, that's the step by step. Yeah, then, uh, and then because we've already done the mulligan, we're almost there. There's actually five steps, but the rest is actually easy. The hard work is done. You'll be happy to hear that, by the way, that the, the hard work is already done. <laughs> <laughs> because now we have two separate events we have calculated. We have uh, the event that Luminion is on our hand and the event that none of them are basic. None of the others are basic. In, in statistic terms, we can call these two events independent of one another. And what does that actually mean? That means that just because we have Luminion in our first card doesn't influence our probability of hitting other basics in the six others. They are not related. Mm -hmm. that, that makes sense, right? That, yeah. uh, just because you draw Luminion first has nothing to do with what you're going to draw the next six cards. Yes, I understand that. And, and, and that concept opens up to something very, very neat. That means when two events are independent, we can just take the two probabilities we have calculated and multiply them with each other. That, that, that's what it means. There's an independence rule that says 
the probability of both of those independent events happening, if they're independent, that is, you can just multiply their individual probabilities. So that's already step three. That then, then you have actually calculated the probability of opening only Luminion. And I can tell everybody who's listening out there, the probability of opening only Luminion following this gives you a nice value of 4.12%. So not, not too bad. No, but... Uh, one the, in 20 the, games, about? One in 20 games, roughly. And then the, the, but the quick viewer out there will say, you forgot something. And then you go like, uh-oh, what did we forget? I told you there was five steps, right? Oh, true. Yeah, and uh, that means we need to control for mulligans. And that was why we calculated mulligans first. Because there exists, the fourth step is we need to factor for mulligans. Because remember, every time you have a mulligan, you reshuffle and do it again. Mm. That essentially, what does that mean? It actually means that our more draws from which this bad situation can happen. So what's actually going to happen right now is that we're going to calculate the probability of mulligan for a 10-card deck. And here comes the, the really good news is we have already done that because that's what we did in our first little example. That was the 25.86% or roughly one in four games. I so see. So yeah, yeah. So in in one out of four of your games with your ten card deck, you actually have to go back in your deck, and then, then there's another chance you can get the Lumineon because exactly. you mulligan. Exactly. You're absolutely right on that. So that brings us to the very final thing: How do we actually combine this and control for it? Like, there's a lot of a uh, say a mathematical manipulation you can do here and whatnot. But essentially, all we have to do now is take the probability we found before for opening just Luminion, the 4.12%, and divide that by 1 minus having a mulligan. And long story short, that will weigh this outcome and factor in the probability of mulligans, and we will get the actual true number. So that means I'm going to right here, we're going to take our resolve from before, we're going to divide that by 1 minus the mulligan probability that we got. And uh, let me see if I'm doing this, well, say, correctly. I may or may not have done a mistake, but if I get a mistake, I'll, I'll calculate it. We'll fix it as we go <laughs> along, right? Because uh, I'm getting something that is a little tricky here. Let me see. Hmm. I made a typo. Making typos is... Uh, it's very interesting. It's because when I translate for mulligans, I multiply by 100. And if I do that, it uh, kind of messes up everything. You need to be consistent in your denomination. But okay, I fixed my typo. So that gives you a true probability of this happening of 5.55%. Okay. And that's the final answer, actually. Hmm. For, a 10 card de for a 10 basic deck with one Luminion, the probability of opening only Luminion happens... 5.55% of the time. So you can again go back and say, with a little grain of salt, 1 in 20 games. I see. And, so, and that's essentially it. Yeah. So for some people, not too bad. Others' perspectives might be that's terrible, right? <laughs> it's kind of um, like you, we, we've been there already. And everybody has to remember, regardless of how unlikely something seems, 
it will happen eventually. Mm. If you play a deck like this, no matter how base basic, suppose you really want to go out there and you want to be safe. You don't want to start any Luminion. You think, I'm going to play 25 basics because then, you know, I'm safe, right? Well, the truth is, it can still happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just very unlikely, but it can still happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You, you did, you, uh, you mentioned this a little bit earlier um, in the conversation, but to what extent do you think players should be accounting um, for things like this when building their decks? Specifically, maybe like, you know, maybe they feel their deck is inconsistent, so they say, well, let's add a support Pokemon. Well, let's add another support Pokemon. Well, let's add this tech for a matchup. And now every other game, you're starting with a card you don't want. Um, how much thought do you think should be put in when deck building um, with things like this? I think this is a really interesting question first, because this comes back to like, should I just net deck something or should I try and build my own deck? And uh, here we're assuming you're really trying to build your own deck. Say if you build something from scratch, you really have to think a lot about this. Because when you build something from scratch, of course, you're not you're not leaning up against a pre-existing list or so, and then you have to put much more thought into this. Whereas if you actually just you take a deck from say Limitless website, great source, you find okay, I like this deck, but I want to play this tech for a matchup, right? But you also realize this tech here is very good, of course, for that matchup you're taking it for. Otherwise, why would you do it? But it's horrible to start with absolutely horrendous you don't want to start with it mm-hmm. and and there you have to actually really make some thought go into this is this actually worth it and there comes the whole idea how many times do i expect i'm gonna need it because we also heard about that you check for a certain matchup and then you completely misread the meta and there was nobody who played it or so few that in a big event you never saw it and then you just played a useless card that was a liability in any other game yeah and it happened to all of us. Mm-hmm. And and then something I, in short, yes, you should certainly think about it. But should you really put a lot of thought into it? I'm unsure. Like, uh, no, let me put it in a different way. You just should not if you're already doing a pre-existing deck. But if you're building from scratch, you should think more about it. I think that's, uh, that's how I would put it together. I see. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think I'm thinking of kind of two pretty like relevant examples for that like one being like playing pump kaboo and lugia where uh, uh, yeah. it kind of depends on well how much path to the peak are you expecting right because pump kaboo is the easiest way to stop path to the peak because you can search it unlike a stadium but you do not want to start pump kaboo so what do you how, how are you kind of assessing the risk of hitting a deck that is going to play a bunch of Path of the Peak versus the risk of starting that Pump Kaboo. Which one do you think outweighs the other? I think you're actually, I think it's a super cool example because the Luminion actually fits in the same box because it's the same deck all of a sudden, right? Yes. And now, what are you actually telling me here? There's more than one basic in the deck you don't want to start with and this (laughs) only becomes worse. (laughs) Yes. But then again, this is also the one deck, at least for Luminion, it's still bad to start with, but... Well, in Lugia's case, you can just, when Archeops hits the field, you can charge Lugia, uh, sorry, you you could charge Luminion. Well, right now you cannot really do it, but in the premise format you could, because we had Aurora energy. Yes. Then it was easy to do. And someone would say, yeah, but we're going to get Luminous energy or whatever it's called now. Yeah, but there's another problem with that energy. If you attach another special energy next to it, it becomes a callless also, so it doesn't really work, does it now? <laughs> so yeah. it's still making Luminion a super bad starter. 
Yeah, I, I think I mis I misread Luminous the first time I read it. I thought it was that it's a rainbow and it makes all the other special energy colorless. No, it makes itself colorless. So it's it's pretty useless in Lugia unless you have like a Radiant Charizard for the last turn of the game. Uh, other than that, it's it's essentially a colorless energy. And and for us who have played for a much longer time, I don't even call it that. I don't call it luminous energy. I call it mulchy energy because that's what the yes. old print was of this card. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yeah. We're also we got reverse energy. You see scramble energy. <laughs> yeah, I say scramble. Like I, I didn't even know it was called reversal. Hmm. No idea. I just call it scramble because essentially same effect. Yes. The idea is at least exactly the same. Hmm. But there are some small intricate changes, of course. But. Because I believe Scramble, you could not even attach to a basic Pokemon. Yes. And, and and Reversal, you can. It just doesn't work. Yeah, a Reversal, I mean, the, the, the common example is Gardevoir. Like, you could put it on a Ralts, and you always have the threat of evolving it into a Gardevoir and using the attack. Um, you know, if you're going to research it away, you could just attach it. That's uh, exactly true. No, no, that's true. That's a big difference, because that means the whole Scramble was worse. But mm -hmm. the idea was the same. It was a triple when you're behind. Now, all we need now is uh, they reprint double rainbow, and then uh, we're back in the good old days, as it seems. <laughs> we're almost there. We're almost there. <laughs> almost, we're almost there. We're so yes. close. Um, now, yeah, that, that this entire lesson was, was unbelievably uh, helpful and very interesting. And for anyone who's kind of um, at any point might have been wanting some support with following along um i'll also reference it at the beginning of the video but please check out pokey math episode number one and episode number two both of which will be in the show notes talking about the hypergeometric formula <laughs> um and <laughs> it sounds uh, much more scary than it is i swear <laughs> um and uh talking about starting your support pokemon so if you want to see some of that a little bit more in action in video uh feel free to check out those videos both of which will be in the show notes now, Stefan, do you mind if I ask you maybe like a semi, maybe not as fast as lightning, but a couple short form answers for a couple of the other like big probability things that come up in Pokemon that I've noticed? Sure, sure. Try me, but I cannot guarantee that this is going to be uh, <laughs> uh, going to be the best, uh, my best performance ever. But uh, shoot. <laughs> of course. Well, I think uh, I'll start off with with a, uh, a controversial one. Um, you do have a video called Why Seven Riffle Shuffles is Not Optimal. <laughs> Ooh, um, yeah, I could know. Could you I'm, tell I'm, us a, a little potato. bit about shuffling and um, what maybe we're doing wrong? Now, the shortest possible way I can say this, seven is was the, so when they invented this formula for how many shuffles it takes, seven was essentially not even the number that came out. That's actually the fact. And the point with this was, uh, seven is not always optimal because in Pokemon especially, the size of your deck varies as the game progresses, mm. which means that always shuffling seven, sometimes it's the good number, other times you're overdoing it. And especially when you start the game, and if you want to use the formula calculated, I think for a normal 52-card deck, which is what it was based on, the formula back in the day, it gave you 8.55. And uh, that's, for the quick person out there, that's not 7. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's a higher number. And of course, if I now have a 60-card deck, that number is slightly higher. It's 8 point, a little higher. It's closer to 9. So that means, in essence, you should shuffle, you should riffle more than that nine times when you actually set up for a game, not seven. Hmm. But then again, seven is seemed as enough for more intricate reasons. But in short, seven is not always the answer. Interesting. How 
um, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but, like, how do they quantify, like, a deck that is, like, shuffled? Like, considered it has now been shuffled adequately. How is that quantified? So that's what you define as what is sufficiently random. Uh, and uh, the answer here is, uh, from a mathematical point of view, you want to be that the probability of... Uh, any card being anywhere or any possible arrangement, whatnot, has to be uniform. That means no matter what card you have, the probability of the card being anywhere in the deck should be the same. So if you play your one Luminion, whether it's the card on the top of your deck, second card, bottom card, middle somewhere, should be the same probability. It should be equal probability for wherever that card is. That is perfectly random. Mm -hmm. Now, to achieve this, that takes a hell of a time, actually, in practice. So that's why we go for sufficiently random. <laughs> yes. Um, and that's why things like, I think in Magic it's called like mana weaving um, is considered cheating Ooh, because yeah. you might... start with that. Yeah, because in the back of your head you might think, well, you know, if, I'm, if my starting hand is Luminion and six energy, did I really shuffle my deck? Is this really random? This doesn't seem right. Shouldn't I be getting an equal amount of everything consistently? That is a, a bit of a fallacy, isn't it? It's a fallacy. It is, a, a, in shortest possible way, yes, it's a fallacy, because if it's random, any possible hand is, is, is a go, right? Like, that means you could just start Luminia 6 Energies, and it will happen. If I start with a, a nice uh, distribution of all the good cards, that's because I've been, well, I believe the term we sometimes use is declumping. Or what is it called? Yeah, mana weaving over magic is definitely what they, you know, you sort around your deck and you have it in blocks. And that relates back to a certain shuffle that is not a shuffle, which is actually a counting technique. But if I start on that, I'm going to rant for the next hour about <laughs> why that is not a shuffling technique, but more of a counting technique. But in short, no. <laughs> it's a fallacy. It's, a, it's definitely a fallacy. <laughs> yes. Um, now, I have uh, one other question, which I... I'm going to do a bit of a deep cut. I don't know if this is a subject that um, you, you'll you uh, feel knowledgeable about, but I'll give it a shot. Um, so I've been in situations before in a, in a tournament where, you know, we're in the last round of the event of a, like a cup. Maybe there's yeah. two players who are already locked in for, for top cut, and there's eight players left with a record Ooh, that yeah. might be able to make top cut. Some of the players want to play it out. Some of the players want to ID. They'll have varying levels of resistance. I believe this is where things like game theory come into play a little bit. Um, a who's going to ID? Yeah. Who's going to play it out? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know necessarily if I have a question about that, but could you tell us a little bit about um, how math is involved maybe in situations like that? I thought, I thought about making an extra video about this for so long for this topic. I have something. One of my topics does deal with it. I cannot lie from me remember which episode it is. But I talk about when to ID and when not to ID. There's definitely some questions about this. And the whole point is if, say, suppose two are locked in. That's six spots left and you have eight players fighting for the spots. And if everybody IDs, well, there's going to be two people who's going to be sad because they're going to bubble. That's what we call it, right? Bubbling. Mm -hmm. And uh, But here's the thing. If I sit and want to play a game against somebody and I see somebody they're definitely going to play and I'm sure they're going to play, then if they play, there's a reasonable chance that that game does not end in a tie, which means that there's one person of those two who's going to fall out. This is where your game theory idea comes in, right? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do thinking about what other people are going to do? That's essentially what you're asking. Yes. And, and here, uh, for every game, other game that is doing that, the better it is that you ID. 
I think. This is, again, just my own opinion. But imagine two of the other tables decides to play. And the other two, they ID. And then given that those two play, play to tables who decide to play, actually there's found a winner, then there's nobody bubbling anymore. You have a clean cut all of a sudden. And then IDing for the other two tables was a very good idea. And that, of course, depends on what's the probability they're going to end in a tie. And are they going to observe that you tied because they played? And then they can later say, like, oh, we're going to tie anyway. But that's very unlikely they're going to do that because you're only allowed, by the rules at least, to offer an ID once if you play it really, really by the book. Mm -hmm. There are, of course, cases where a lot of players, they go like, um, uh, they start the game and they go like, do you want ID? And the one goes no. And then they play uh, two games and it's 1-1. One, one, and then they ask again, do you want ID now? And then they say, of course, yes, because, well... It's very likely it's going to be in a tie anyway. But technically speaking, you can only ask for an ID once. That's, I believe that's what the rule says. And then somebody out there will probably uh, nag me for that. But uh, look it up somewhere. It's probably there. But that's definitely something. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there was once I was on board on an app called the Swiss Standing Calculator that could be used to actually calculate this exact scenario. Mm. So a friend of mine, uh, Lars Andersen, um, he was uh, the programmer behind this looking into... Uh, we had such an app on the App Store once. And of course, uh, or unfortunately, it, uh, it uh, expired and we don't have it anymore. It's many years ago. And you do have the tool on Limitless that can help you. Or when you're sitting in the last round, you can often count it. So it's quite nice. But here, there's a lot of game fear elements into it. But if I would sit in the tournament and everything, you assume everything is by the book. If I see other tables that are in... The interesting scenario playing it makes my uh, objective it makes my reasoning for IDing that's more that much more uh, ideal I'll be much more likely to ID but then again both players have to agree and if the other player doesn't just for whatever reason want to play or don't understand what's going on or for other reasons just you know don't want to ID it's also fine you have to respect their decision it's the player's decision mm-hmm yeah, and yeah. that that leads to kind of some interesting scenarios where, like, you know, in an ideal world, everyone asks to ID once, they say yes or no, every game begins at the exact same time, but in reality, I know people are kind of looking to their left, looking to their right, thinking, like, is that table playing it out? Is that table playing it out? And um, kind of in your example, if many, if if all of the tables end up playing it out, then you end up in a situation where of those eight players, four make cut, and then some players who were originally ineligible for cut if everyone ID'd now can bubble it. So it actually exactly, affects because um, will... beyond those exactly. eight players. And there will, there's a lot of players or a lot of people out there in general, they argue against IDing, which should be illegal, because it's, uh, for what they believe, not spirit of the game. I'm not going to touch that exact ar these exact arguments, but there are like, the opinions out there that means that you should just not ID in the first place because it's not fair to other players and so forth. Uh, just want to raise that that's actually a consideration as well, uh, that some players, they don't want to ID out of principle. I would just say, if you're in a case where you both would ID and you're both safe, like suppose there is a situation where you are to cut with five rounds, after three rounds, you're free O. you uh, sit up in table one you're, and you ask to ID, you should always say yes. No questions asked, you should always say yes. Because if you ID the last two rounds, and even if you ID the first one and then have to play the next one, you even end up losing, there's still a very high probability you're in cut. Uh, cut. And um, 
So there are situations where you just should ID. They're just, you know, there's no risk. Yes. Uh, but other cases, like the one you presented here first, that's tricky. But a lot of players, or not a lot of players, but some players will argue you shouldn't even be able to ID or you shouldn't ID because it's against the spirit of the game or something. So there's just a lot of considerations to take into this. Hmm. That is very interesting. Um, and I think to to start wrapping this up, I think that touches on just one last thing that came to mind for me is like when players are talking about performing at like regionals or internationals or especially like the the, the really big regionals that are like, you know, 1,200, 1,300 plus players. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're six and two going into round nine. Um, and then it kind of the question kind of is, should I ID or should I play it out? Because those two extra match points might uh -huh. be the make or break between me making top eight the next day. But then, you know, maybe I want to be seven, two and make a run for top eight. Maybe my opponent wants their first day, too. Um, you know, this is this is a really interesting situation. I have tried not to touch it so much, but what I think I can say about it is it really depends on what your goal with the event is, of course. You are touching that as well there. Mm -hmm. And it's a relatively new discussion because in the beginning where there were just regionals where we were four or 500 players, it was often just ID when you can to get to day two and everybody was happy. There's a reasonable chance to make top eight still. Now, with the, in, in the meantime, when regionals internationals are so large and first and foremost you do play an extra round of swiss after 800 players but when you reach 1200 1500 like at uic or god knows how many we're going to get over at naic yeah <laughs> these numbers here if you're in it to win it you're not gonna id you shouldn't id if you're in it to win it because i have a firm belief but i need to actually simulate this i would like to disclaim i've not done that but if you go 19 points it will be incredibly difficult, if not almost impossible, to make top eight, even with a 6-0 record the next day. Because a 6-0 record, what does that bring you? It brings you 18 match points on top of your 19 match points, putting you at 37. And then we can start looking in the past. Well, 37 is usually fine. It's usually all good, sunshine and rainbows. No problem, you make top eight. But I know that when the regionals or internationals are becoming this big, it's actually in danger for not being enough. Again, I need to check this, but I know at least now with a score of 501, you cannot make it. We actually have evidence of that actually happening recently. Mm -hmm. That a player with 19 points going in goes 501 on the second day, which I believe is a... I think objectively speaking, that's a very respectable day two score. <laughs> yes, yes um, for sure. Very good day two score, and the person ended up being ninth. Like mm -hmm. bubble out. So, was, so yes, the, the person might as well have been in, but uh, but the whole point was even with a 501 score with 19 points, was not even safe for top eight. That actually sounds almost crazy. The question is just, yes, yeah, 6-0 would definitely have made it there, but when we're approaching, say, closer to the 2,000 player mark in a pot like this, with still no additional rounds of Swiss being played, then it sounds like going in with 19 points, yes, you get to play day two, but you're playing for, uh, yeah, not top eight. Mm -hmm. and then again the question of IDing if you're there should you should you not if you're in it to win it no you play it out to get more match points but you're gonna have a lot of players over there who uh, who are gonna be like if I make day two I certainly get my points which means my invite yes this is where if that's the objective then you definitely want to ID you don't want to sit there and play that game you just want to ID knowing that I make day two 
and I get top at least some points, I guess, because points internationals already start very high in general. Yes. So it's a very nice chunk of points you can get, and they'll definitely get your invite for it. There's a lot of players out there who literally just have to hit points at NAIC, and then they're safe. Mm -hmm. So it's a super cool question. I think it's super interesting. I have a few people out there, I bet when they hear this, they're going to sit down and start with their simulations, and hopefully they can uh, do the dirty work <laughs> that I've been too lazy to do. And tell us whether, you know, uh, say you have almost 2,000 players, you go in with 19 points, can you actually make top 8 with a 6-0 score? Yes. That's uh, When day 2 is 200 players, right? <laughs> when day do? 2 is 2, <laughs> yeah, because uh, we are day 2, 200, exactly. Mm -hmm. All right, well, Stefan, I think in that, that on that note, we will start to wrap up. Do you have any um, kind of final uh, comments or uh, things to bring up before we wrap up? I think uh, I think I, I think I said enough already. I think I, <laughs> it was a. I thought, ah, oh, we could do this in twenty minutes. No, we could not do this in twenty minutes. But uh, I really, really want to say thank you for having me here. I always love to talk about these things, and I hope I didn't bore too many out there. And anybody's free to always reach out and just ask any questions. And uh, I'm gladly we enter into the discussion and you know learn more. It's a. Uh, I think this is a super interesting, and I hope everybody out there, or at least some out there, will also find this very interesting. So again, uh, thanks for having me. Of really, course. thank you. Yeah, and th thank you so much. And one last thing I totally forgot is last week you mentioned you were <laughs> going to go to your first uh, league challenge for points for this season, and yeah. you, I heard you got some points. So congratulations. I, I, I managed, yes. So I finished the season at 10 points, which is definitely more than zero, so I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, Stefan, I hope you have a great rest of your day. And um, I think this might air after NAIC, but I hope you have a good time at NAIC. Well, I would have a good time, but I'm not going. Oh, goodness. I'm, I'm so sorry. Going. I am so sorry. It's okay. I've talked it's to so okay. many people. I'm starting to get a little bit mixed up. I'm sorry. It's okay. I wish everybody the best of luck over at NAIC. It's a, a certain to be a fantastic event. It's going to be excellent, excellent staff, I'm sure. And it's going to be absolutely a really great experience. I don't doubt that for a second. And uh, all the best to all the players out there. I hope you're going to go and have fun. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. Well, have a great day, Stefan. Thank you again for uh, speaking with us. Bye-bye. Right. See ya. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you to Stefan for being so generous with his time. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this one, please consider giving the podcast a follow, review, or rating, wherever you're listening. Or if you want to follow us on social media, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at memcappodcast. If you want to see me post about my own TCG experiences, you can follow me on Twitter at rzgladys. I hope you have a great day, and thank you for listening.